It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. High schools can be ruthless places. They make movies about this, of course. Oh my God, I love your skirt. Where did you get it? Uh, it was my mom's in the 80s. Vintage. So adorable. Thanks. <laughs> that is the ugliest effing skirt I've ever seen. The 2004 film Mean Girls became something of a cult classic. It was inspired by the book Queen Bees and Wannabes, helping your daughter survive cliques, gossip, boyfriends, and the new realities of girl world. Written by our guest, Rosalind Wiseman. Today, Wiseman answers some of the trickiest questions about bullying, teen suicide, and parenting in the digital age. She runs a company in Boulder now, Cultures of Dignity, that works on the social challenges of adolescence. Wiseman speaks next month at a youth safety symposium in Montrose. Colorado's western slope has struggled with youth suicide and a lack of mental health care. And Rosalind, welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder what has most changed since you first wrote the book and what is timeless? Well, what's timeless is young people's need for really close friendships and to feel like they belong in a group. Jealousy, comparison to other people. All of those things are really timeless. But I really think it's important for adults to know and appreciate that the world is really different for young people now. For example, young people have no privacy to go through and make the mistakes that we all did without it becoming incredibly public and for people to be able to comment on it. And that includes adults, by the way, to comment on it in really mean ways. You know, I have not heard it put so succinctly that privacy is the difference. Give me an example of a mistake that, you know, would have been innocent and private, or at least in a closed circle back in the day, and now gets kind of broadcast. This isn't innocent, but I think it's certainly normal, meaning it's common. I work with a lot of adolescent boys, and adolescent boys have a very good sense of humor. And it also can be that they can have a really gross, disgusting, or inappropriate sense of humor. It does not mean that they are bad people, but there are a lot of, quote-unquote, good boys who also can say things that could be really inappropriate. And they're trying to figure it out. And the problem in our culture is that they can't ask questions about what is inappropriate and what's not appropriate without sometimes the feeling that somebody is going to accuse them of being a bad person. And so boys, especially in their group chats, which are usually private, can say things that are sexually inappropriate. They can say things that are racist. They can say things that are homophobic. And I've spent my entire career fighting against these things. But the way to handle it with boys is not to shame them and not to allow them to ask questions. We hold them accountable in the right way. But it is so much social currency for boys to be funny with their friends Sometimes they forget that what they're doing is really wrong or will look really terrible to other people. And that has been happening forever. And now, unfortunately, we have records, videos, of, you know, recordings, their texts. You've, in fact, written a book about boys, wingmen and masterminds helping our boys cope with schoolyard power, locker room tests, girlfriends and the new rules of boy world. What do kids get teased for nowadays? I mean, is it different from say, 20 years ago. I mean, I think about the things that made someone a target back when I was growing up, being gay, not dressing according to the trends. I imagine there's some evolution in this and and that there's also some things that stay the same. 
Yes, you're right. Young people are still being teased for the way they look, for how they are perceived with their sexual orientation or their gender expression. I think what's really a problem is that young people often are struggling to see adult role models that they can really look to. I I don't think that there's a child in this country who's involved in some kind of highly competitive sports who has not seen a coach, a parent, some adult on the field or on a court or something like that behaving in ways that are absolutely inappropriate and abusing power and bullying somebody else. And we don't talk about that. What we only talk about when we talk about bullying is it's this very simplified way of talking about bullying where one kid is being really, really horrible to another child and that child is 100% innocent. And usually, you know, that can happen, but usually things are a little bit more complicated than that. And we never talk about how adults behave. Ah, so the bullying conversation lacks nuance and parents need to look at their own behavior. There's a quote at the beginning of the reissued version of Queen Bees from a dad who says, I just went through my 14-year-old daughter's text messages and want to throw up. I couldn't believe the language she was using about herself and other kids. Do you recommend parents go through their kids' phones? Oh, good question. Well, in general, I believe in graduated freedoms with social media and with technology. So you can decide when you give your child a cell phone. And if you decide, by the way, that you don't want to do that for a really long time, that's totally fine, in spite of the fact that your child will tell you that you are the only one who is doing that. But it is with the supervision issue is that I do really believe that relationships of trust between children and parents are absolutely paramount. And so it really, you got to, we got to think about this from a strategic point of view. So your children, by the time they get a cell phone, need to be very, very clear about what it concretely looks like about your family values in action. And that has to be really connected to what it means about how they show up in social media. So that means that they are not saying sexist, for example, homophobic, or racist remarks online, hopefully in real life as well, and that you will discipline them if that happens, even if they don't think it was serious, even if they don't really realize what they were doing, even if they say that everybody else was doing it. We often think that our children are not participating in these kinds of things, and I I really need to emphasize that in my experience that across the board, a lot of children are saying comments like this to each other, and or if they're not saying it, they are hearing it. So it is common in my experience in Colorado, but also around the country, that white children often say the N-word, for example, and they will fight you on their right to say it. And some kids will get really upset about it, and some kids will say that's not right, but there's a lot of young people who believe that that's okay. And because we don't feel comfortable talking about race in this country, because we feel like, oh gosh, I don't want to say anything wrong, then we don't say anything. So it's not enough to be able to say, we are not a racist family. I'm not raising my child to be racist. That's not enough because our young people are living in a culture where all sorts of messages are coming at them, which are going to be very contrary to that. So it doesn't mean that our kids are bad kids. It means that we've got to be able to face reality and be able to step into really difficult conversations because that's what parents should do. That's our responsibility. Uh, We asked our Instagram followers, what are you worried about most when it comes to your kids? And I'm going to share a few of the responses with you, Rosalind, throughout the interview. Uh, Instagram user Jennifer Torman is worried that her son will minimize the severity of his life-threatening food allergies so he fits in. Uh, The thought that fitting in is so important, kids are willing to risk their health 
is astounding to me. Does that surprise you? No, that doesn't surprise me because what I'm imagining is that she's worried that when he says what his allergies are, his friends and even maybe some adults are going to say things to minimize the allergies. Like, oh, really? Is like, are you really going to die if you eat X, Y, and Z? And so I can totally picture that. I think what has to happen is that the parent role plays with the child. What are the possible things that people will say to you that will make you feel like you have to defend yourself or you're feeling embarrassed about your allergies so that we really articulate what he's worried about? And what are the possible responses that you can have so that you are saying what you need to say and you're taking yourself seriously? And you can't control what another person says, but you can be more prepared about how you handle the situation. You're a mom. You have two teenagers. I wonder if it's a challenge for you to draw too many conclusions based on what happens in your own home versus taking in lots of information from lots of different young people um, and getting a broader view of the world. So my greatest gift is that I don't just have two teenagers in my home who are telling me their opinions about things, but I have like truly like countless amounts of teenagers telling me when I'm wrong about things. So actually what's happened is that I learn from the the really, truly the hundreds, the thousands of young people that tell me what I'm doing in my work and how to talk to adults, because that's what I do is I listen to young people and they tell me how they are receiving the information that adults are talking to them about things like bullying or social media. And then I listen to them and then I translate it for adults. And so I really am in the position of listening to young people. And then that helps me inform me about how I talk to my children. So, for example, one of the things that I know that I've learned and I really try and practice is that if I speak for more than three minutes about anything that I'm trying to communicate with my sons, they will stop listening. (laughs) So there's really no point in me continuing. So any conversation I have with them, unless they want to talk to me, is going to be about three minutes long. Ah, If you're going to have a heart-to-heart and you think this is like the most important conversation you're going to have with them that year, you need to boil the message down. Oh, three minutes and don't repeat yourself. If I really, really need to talk to them when I pick them up at the end of the day, and this is something that kids literally around the world I have talked to about this, that when they get into the car at the end of the day or they see their parents at the end of the day, there is a tendency for parents to ask a million questions like, how are you doing? Who did you talk to? Were people nice to you? Did you do all of your work? How was, how was your practice? All that. And what I realize from young people that I work with is that that is an interrogation. It's exhausting. It does not come across as an expression of love. It, and especially in a very high pressure community that we live in, if you live in that kind of community and you're feeling like you constantly have to achieve, your child has to decompress and have a moment of not thinking about all the things that they have to do. And so when we barrage them with all of these questions, they shut down. And sometimes they pick up their phone and they look like they're addicted to their phone. They're not really addicted to their phone in that moment. They're just trying to put up a wall in between us and all of the questions. Rates of suicide in general in Colorado are some of the highest in the southwest corner of the state. Um, This touches Montrose County, where this symposium next month is taking place uh, that you are a part of. What have you learned about the connection between suicide and bullying? And and I'll preface it by saying that experts who've come on the show before say it's, it's misguided to say one naturally leads to the other. But what can you make of the connection? 
Um, I agree that they're um, what those experts are saying. And I think that what really is a indicator or a lead for suicide is feelings of isolation. So young people can tolerate incredibly horrible situations, things that they never, ever should deal with. But when they are in a situation where adults won't talk to them or they blow it off and say, don't let it bother you, just turn the other cheek, I really need to be clear with people that by the time a young person comes to talk to an adult about a problem like bullying, by the time they go to an adult and ask for help, they've been thinking about telling that adult for a very long time. So when an adult says, don't let it bother you, don't let it, don't let them see that it bothers you, those kinds of things, it's a real shutdown and it feels like isolation. And so we know that feelings of isolation really compound the feelings and the tendency toward suicide. So I, in my experience with bullying, yes, bullying happens, but it is not the way that the media usually portrays it, that this child committed suicide because they were bullied. Human beings are more complex than that. And so the reasons that people would kill themselves, would take their own lives, are more complex than that. So one of the things I say to adults all the time is, is that if you know, in those situations, don't blow it off. The thing you need to be saying is, thank you so much for telling me. And together, we're going to work on this. But I am so sorry that you have gone through this experience. In conversations I've had about young people's mental health, I hear the need for resiliency. God, that's a buzzword these days. It is. Kids need to be more resilient. There's this kind of generation against generation thing, and you're too sensitive, and you know we, we were grittier when we were kids. Could you speak to that? Yeah, I feel I have very strong feelings about that because we don't know what it's like to walk in young people's shoes. We don't often ask them. We tell them, and then we give them advice that is not reflective of their experiences. We don't know what it's like to be surrounded by constant messaging and constant social media feeds that show that adults are poor role models. We don't know what it's like to be in enormous schools that have been designed because of school shootings. We don't know what it's like to have counselors who have 500 people on their roster. So you don't you can barely go in to change a class, let alone have to express an experience of a mental health problem. We don't know what this is like. And yet we would say that our kids lack resilience and grit. I mean, it's just an incredible thing to me. I mean, I just want us to take a moment to think about one of the most common things that we say to young people, which is, if you have a problem, if you're being bullied, go talk to an adult. Well, which adult? That's a skill. You don't just randomly go up to an adult, especially mm. if you're going to a school with 2,000 people in it and you're in a class with 30 kids. Just think about the context in which are we are asking young people to ask for help. In our Instagram call-out, we got this response actually from right here at CPR. And this person uh, says of their five-year-old daughter, I'm afraid she will kill herself someday. The news feels full of parents who were clearly loving and involved and wanted the best for their kids and just couldn't prevent them from taking their own lives. How do you respond to that? Oh, it's awful. It's awful. I mean, as a parent, I... You know, oh, my gosh, right? It's this awful feeling. My, one of my children has had a lot of anxiety, and you just feel so helpless as a parent sometimes. So as a parent, I think that one of the things we need to do is think about that we don't need to know everything that is going on in our children's lives. We don't. But we do need to say to them, 
you know, I respect your privacy, especially as you get you're getting older. But when you're feeling isolated, when you're feeling alone, when you're feeling like you're the only person who's going through something, that's a time to reach out. And as you get older, by the way, and you don't want to talk to me, maybe your mom or your dad, it's actually just as important and just as helpful as maybe you can find somebody else that we can agree on that I think has, you know, really good values and I think has a solid, you know, head on their shoulders. And you believe that they know what they're talking about and they're not your mom or dad, because maybe that also is really helpful. Huh. Because there's lots of people in life who really you can go to for support. I, I would like to talk about educators' role in all this, um, how involved they should be, because we got one response on Instagram from a teacher, Courtney Vanderlinden who says, I'm worried parents won't let their teens learn independence. I suppose she's speaking to the kind of helicopter parenting situation. What role do you see for educators? Well, I think that educators can create cultures of dignity in their classrooms, and they are instrumental in teaching the connection between social and emotional skills and academic competence. Help, help me understand that. Sure. So, for example, schools love to put children in groups to learn. So you're in a group starting at like six years old. You're in groups and you're working together, which makes a lot of sense because we have to learn how to work together. And then if you think about in high school that you're with your chem partner and you're doing really complicated experiments, I mean, that's hard. Well, one of the things that happens when you work in groups is that usually somebody is doing all the work or somebody is perceived to be falling behind or somebody's micromanaging or there's complications, there's conflicts in groups. And so we actually can tie, a teacher can say, hey, I'm your science teacher and we're going to do a group activity. But you know what's going to happen? It might happen that we get into conflicts with our work responsibilities. And here's how the protocol that I want you to use if you get into a problem. The importance of how you work in a group, whatever the content is, with the actual content of what they are teaching. Oh. We hardly ever teach teachers to do that or make those connections. And that's what we are trying to do at Cultures of Dignity is make those connections. And it also means, by the way, that our teachers, when we do that, are building really important relationships with young people so that if young people need to go to them for help, that the teacher is more capable of being able to respond effectively. Rosalind, thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're so welcome. Rosalind Wiseman of Boulder wrote the book Queen Bees and Wannabes, which inspired the film Mean Girls. On May 9th, she'll speak at a youth safety symposium put on by the Montrose County School District. She's also holding a special event for kids the same day in Telluride. It's the time of year when encounters between bears and people increase. Sometimes people are the reason. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce tells us Colorado Springs may follow Durango's lead on how to handle the problem. Spring is when bears normally wake up from hibernation, hibernating, of course, because they don't have enough food in the winter. Though Colorado Springs City Council President Richard Scorman says tasty trash can disrupt that. In fact, we've heard that there are some bears that come out of hibernation on garbage day in a specific neighborhood. Some never hibernate at all. The more trash they eat, bears sometimes get hundreds of pounds heavier than normal. They lose fear of humans, can end up in backyards. It's not even in the backyard. What happens is they break into the homes. Pretty much the whole western side of Colorado Springs directly butts against the Pike National Forest. That's a lot of potential for human-bear interaction and an increasing concern of local elected leaders. 
Area Wildlife Manager for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, Frank McGee, says if a bear is caught coming in contact with humans, it can be relocated back to the wild one time. And then if it is recaptured, causing conflicts with people again, policy says it has to be euthanized. A cold spring and dry summer in 2017 led to a severe bear food shortage in many parts of the state. The Colorado Springs area euthanized more than two dozen bears that year, way above normal. Wildlife officials say that was a rare situation, but it led City Hall to investigate a solution. Again, Frank McGee. The single most effective way to reduce conflicts with bears is to require people to secure their trash. The city of Durango recently started requiring residents have bear-safe trash cans. About 3,500 of these cans are now sitting outside homes there. Durango Director of Operations and Utilities Levi Lloyd says in 2017, before the requirement, there were 168 calls about problem bears. And in 2018, we only had 45. That's about a 75% reduction. Colorado Springs elected leaders are set to consider a similar requirement for residents west of Interstate 25 in the coming weeks. Residents would have to pay for the cans over time, which could cost them a couple hundred bucks apiece. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Denver's urban camping ban means people can't take shelter on the street with blankets or tents. We've been reporting on a ballot measure to repeal the ordinance and make it a right to live in the city's public spaces. The Right to Survive, Initiative 300, is on the May ballot in the city. So what might it be like if people were allowed to live on the streets of Denver? They have some experience with this in Los Angeles. Gail Holland covers homelessness for the L.A. Times and joins us. Gail, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. So for the last decade, the city of Los Angeles has allowed people experiencing homelessness to stay out on the streets. Just tell us a bit about the background here and and what the policy is. Well, the policy is actually you can sleep overnight in the streets. And in the daytime, you're supposed to drop your tent or pack up your things and go somewhere else and or find some kind of shelter activity. Um, The camps in these past 10 years, but most recently when the recession ended, the camps just exploded. They're everywhere. They used to be confined to certain parts of Los Angeles, uh, Skid Row, which I think every city has a skid row. I'm not sure about Denver. Uh, Hollywood and Venice were the three major nodes. But now there are camps all over, like Culver City, where I am right now, some of the suburban areas. So in response to this explosion, which has a, which basically has a lot to do with rents or incomes not keeping pace with rents because L.A. is basically a city of poor people or has been. Um, the Both the city and county voters approved $4.6 billion, and the state is now giving hundreds of millions more to open shelters and build permanent supportive housing, which is kind of the gold standard of how to get people off the street. How did it come about that Los Angeles began allowing people to spend the night on the street? Well, in the Skid Row area, there was kind of a pitched political battle that went on for a number of years about 
whether enforcement and putting people in jail was an appropriate response to the proliferation of street camps when there wasn't enough shelter space for all those people to go into. Mm. And there was a belief by the then police chief and a lot of the city leaders that if it was made uncomfortable to be on the streets, people would go into shelters and programs that would help them find a more permanent solution to their economic dilemma. Uh, There was a lot of pushback on that from the social services and civil rights community and a lot of litigation, and the city consistently lost the lawsuits, even though they attempted to appeal all the way up as far as they could go. So at that time, they came to this, what they hoped would be a temporary solution of letting people sleep overnight while they built enough housing. But what happened was in that interim, there was just this explosion of homelessness. There's 53,000 people in the county of Los Angeles that don't have a place to sleep or stay. And most of them, at least three quarters, are actually in the street as opposed to in shelters or temporary, some kind of other temporary housing. So well, this this is uh, fascinating. This, the, the ability to sleep overnight uh, in a tent or with a sleeping bag or covering yourself with something um, was supposed to be in Los Angeles a temporary thing until shelters could be built to accommodate people. Um, so it, it sounds like there's now an investment in the kinds of resources that will get people shelter. But until those are built, what is it like in Los Angeles with these camps? Help us understand the effect on businesses, on property owners, on folks who are experiencing homelessness. Well, the city and the county are responding to the camps. They have at least doubled their camp cleanup budget. The city is spending $31 actually, last year on homeless camp cleanups, and those cleanups involve street cleaning, but they are led by LAPD, which has been pretty assertive about looking up warrants and other things that uh, can lead to jailing or other kinds of repercussions for the homeless people. Just recently, in the past two years, the police have been asked to step back because it's not really felt that this is helping. Again, the encampments haven't really dropped and people haven't found shelter or housing because the police are being more aggressive. So they're kind of backing off the arrest thing, but they're still going out and trying to maintain order in the streets. There's a tremendous amount of unrest among homeowners and businesses about these camps. And it's it's kind of an amazing situation. There are places where that you would never guess, like Bel Air, for example, which one of the richest communities in the country Mm. had uh, has a, you know, a hilly area and some homeless camps started a pretty serious fire that threatened one of our major museums, the Getty, last year. So it goes all the way from that to very poor neighborhoods. So the city, in response to this latest outbreak, has started funding shelters as opposed to just housing, which they never did. So they're hoping that 
by moving people through shelters, they'll get into housing faster. And they'll, they've so far, though, they've had a lot of pushback to the shelters from neighborhoods that don't believe that they're, they should have shelters, especially within reach of their children or businesses. But it's kind of an amazing situation. I mean, I have friends that live in some of the heavily impacted uh, poor neighborhoods, you know, renter neighborhoods, who like have literally have tents right in front of their uh, the entrance to their apartment court. The thing is, this these all these camps can be cleared. It's a matter of resources. It's not like there isn't legal recourse for the city to clear camps, for example, that are blocking the entrance to people's apartments or businesses. Mm. It's just a matter of how much money are you going to spend and how much money are you going to take away from shelter or housing that is thought to be both more humane and a more permanent solution than just enforcement and cleanups. We're speaking with Gail Holland, a reporter at the Los Angeles Times who covers homelessness, uh, seeing what Denver might glean from L.A.'s experiences. So you've talked about cleanups. Um, Why is there the need for cleaning up? Help us understand the situation that develops in these camps. Well, the camps generate a lot of trash, and there's also problems with, uh, you know, human waste because there's no bathrooms around these tents and no way for people to wash up. And the city kind of tentatively on the edges has started providing trash bins and pickup to a few camps, as well as in the county in particular, is providing porta-potties and uh, wash stations. The old thinking used to be, don't do that because that will make these camps permanent when there were fewer camps. But now that they're everywhere, they're trying that on the edges. But the problem is that, you know, things are never like Things on the street never work exactly like you think when you're at a city council meeting and hear a policy proposal. So I know I was talking to sanitation the other day about this pilot program where they're going to provide trash pickup. And he said the problem is unless we're able to get there as soon as the bags we're handing out to the homeless people are collected, other homeless people will be going through that trash looking for valuable things that they can use to survive on the street. It sounds so, to me... It sounds it's very me, complicated. Yeah, it's so complicated and uh, a tough nut to crack for sure, but it sounds to me like this was, in a way, the kick in the shorts that the city and the state might have needed to invest in shelter. Do you have that sense from your reporting, Gail? Definitely. I mean, I think the jury is way still out, though, on how effective the shelters will be, Uh because the shelters are going to, at best, they're expecting the shelters to uh, guard 1,500 people. And again, there's in the city of L.A. alone, I believe there's 31,000 people in the streets. So the idea of the shelters is not simply to provide that temporary refuge, but that people will be able to move into housing faster. Because unless you've really looked into it, it's amazing the amount of work, both on the part of 
homeless outreach workers and housing navigators and medical teams that it takes before somebody can end on the part of the homeless people themselves before they can get from the street into like an apartment. And again, no one's given, no one's handed the keys to a free apartment. I think a lot of people don't understand that. The homeless person has to create an income, whether it's through public assistance or a job or family members' help. So this also is a complicated factor. And not a quick one, as you're explaining. I appreciate the perspective from L.A. Thank you, Gail. Thank you. Gail Holland, reporter at the LA Times who covers homelessness and spoke with us about the effects of a widespread uh, of widespread urban camping there. Voters in Denver are deciding who will lead Colorado's capital city, including the mayor. Jamie Gillis hopes to unseat incumbent Michael Hancock. She has lived in Denver since 2006, started her own consulting firm focused on urban revitalization. Between now and Election Day, May 7th, Colorado Matters teams up with Denverite to profile the frontrunners. So why is Gillis running and what does she see as the city's biggest challenges? My big focus in this race is on two core things. Uh, Managing development and growth in a smart and strategic way for our future and ensuring we're figuring out how we invest in all the things that we need to support that growth. And ensuring that we have transparent and accountable and fiscally responsible uh, management going forward. We have um, grown, we have built out the city, we have invested in some significant uh, projects along the way, but I think our failure to invest in transit, transportation, the mobility in the city, to address environmental challenges, to address affordability and issues with a growing homeless population, um, and to ensure we're focused on a quality of life livable city are the core issues in this campaign and why I'm in the race. Now, Gillis's stance are similar to other candidates in this race. So how does she differentiate herself? I'm the only one in the race that's actually been working in urban planning and has focused on working as a city manager, working on the complexity of urban issues that address um, a lot of these issues across the board. I spent my entire career solely focused on how cities are rebuilding and accommodating growing new populations after coming out of an era of disinvestment and really focused on, from a policy perspective, what sorts of things do we need to ensure we have um, healthy communities that that our growth is economically sustainable? Um, from a planning perspective, what does land use look like? How do we use land effectively and efficiently? And land use is obviously tied to affordability. It's tied to how we build transit and where we put transit. And so that strategic thinking for me is critical, critically needed in this administration, in this office. And I think while there's obviously a lot of candidates with a lot of different areas of expertise, the mayor included, who's been at the city, my mind works from a very pragmatic, uh, you know, management perspective of how do we ensure investment um, at the same time along all those fronts so that um, growth actually works for the people that live here. And with me again today is Denverite's David Sachs, who covers this city beat. Hi, David. Hey, how are you doing, Ryan? Doing well. Help us uh, ground her statements. 
So Jamie Gillis is pretty interesting because she is partly responsible for the boom in Rhino, River North, which is in the Five Points neighborhood. So she's very pro-business, obviously, but also uh, wants to be seen as a candidate who will not let growth get out of control and create, I guess, prosperity for people who live here as well and allow them to stay put. And there can be tension uh, between those two goals if you think about what Rhino looks like now compared to what it looked like before. So Rhino is a sort of former industrial area that's now uh, in many ways a playground of restaurants and artist studios and hotels, things like that. And yeah, and she 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 wants to see that in more places, but also wants to make sure that the uh, the tools are there to um, intervene in, in the market to make sure uh, people don't get priced out. She talks a lot about transit in her answers. There, she does. She wants to bring back streetcars, which uh, Denver, you know, was built around uh, streetcars at one point, and that's a big part of her platform. She wants to bring back streetcars, but that's pretty expensive compared to bus rapid transit. She's also very interested in um, keeping density out of certain areas. She believes in development, but doesn't want to see density. She doesn't want to see that throughout the entire city. Even as Jamie Gillis asks people to vote for her, uh, the story has emerged about her own voting record. Yeah, she's missed 10 of the last 22 elections since she moved to Denver in 2006. What does she say about all those missed elections? She says she was living overseas at those times. And of course, you can vote absentee, but she did not. David, thanks. Thank you. David Sachs covers the city for Denverite, which is now part of Colorado Public Radio. And together, we are profiling the leading candidates for Denver mayor. Tomorrow, the incumbent, Michael Hancock. And you can find a complete guide to the municipal election May 7th at denverite.com. When we come back, the hidden history of prostitutes in the Old West. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committees. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A warning that our next conversation deals with adult themes. Prostitutes in Old West mining towns were relegated to the shadowy world of the night. They were often shunned by their communities, and yet they played an important role in the history of the West. Telluride poet Kirsten Bridger gives voice to these women in her collection Demi Monde. And Kirsten, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. Demimonde translates as half-world from French, referring to the unspoken world of night that Old West prostitutes inhabited. Tell us about the women of the Demimonde in the 1800s in Colorado. Who were they? I wonder where they came from. I think um, the project was really about making sure that they weren't stereotypes, they weren't caricatures, that I was looking to give them voice find out stories of each personal woman, because I think we've thought of them as a collective for Mm. so long. So some of them were illiterate. Some of them were from great families. Some of them were runaways. I think that as many women that were involved in prostitution, they had that many stories. 
And were they forced by circumstance into prostitution? Was it a choice that you feel they made willingly? Talk to us about what you were able to glean uh, about how their lives led them to that. Well, there wasn't a lot of agency for women in these days. You know, you were either property of your husband or your father, really. And it wasn't until you got older and kind of realized you could work around laws. But at that time, you know, you weren't able to have really your own property. If your husband beat you, you really had no recourse. Your children could be taken from you. You could be sent to a sanitarium. I mean, really, as women, you just didn't have a lot of options. So if your husband was in the mine and he was killed uh, in an accident and you maybe didn't read so well, you couldn't be a teacher, there wasn't a lot of options left to you, and you had to pay the rent. How difficult was it to gather these stories? Um, That is to say, how much of a paper trail is there from these lives? So it's a lot of cross-research. It's a lot of reading between the lines. In Uray, for example, they had three newspapers. And so one was all about salacious advertising, you know, talking about... Uh, the opium dens and, you know, kind of exciting and titillating the, their audiences. Another paper was about eradicating prostitution and the scourge and creating a, a world where respectable people might want to come to Uray. So it was really interesting to read these stories and, and the bias that the paper would have. Um, but I also read like Madam's accounts of these women. In journals? In in memoirs, mm-hmm. in journals. But there was a lot written about them and not from them. Is that where you come in? I do. Uh-huh. <laughs> so am I appropriating these voices? I don't, you know, I don't know. But I'm a Western girl. You know, I was born in Buena Vista, or I wasn't born in Denver, but raised primarily in Buena Vista. Mm-hmm. And you know that because I pronounce it Buena Vista. Buena Vista. <laughs> I've been told that's the proper pronunciation. Well, it should yeah. sound like beautiful. It should. So you're reading from Demimonde at the Telluride Theater, May 14th. Um, I'll note that each poem in the book is preceded by a translucent page with a historic photo. So the words of the poem appear like ghosts through the image, as if they're emerging from the Demimonde. Um, why don't we step into this half world by having you read the title poem? Demimonde. Is it any wonder she calls to children from her lace curtains to fetch her pharmacy cures? Ergo dust and oil of tansy, prussic acid and laudanum to ease the void. Black thread to web frayed stockings, white to repair a torn chemise. She lives in a west where larkspur seeds are sought for poison, where fellow fair Cyprians dab belladonna beads on closed lids where bedroom eyes blink narcotic for rough men and fine, men who sift gold dust in their pockets, who once upstairs call her by the third name she'll conceive this year. There's so much going on there. So she's calling to children if they'll pick up her pharmacy cures. What is she curing? She may have to prevent a pregnancy. She may... um, seek the belladonna that creates that dilation in your pupil to create that sort of bedroom look. Um, when when the Old West, you know, first started, women were really part of the, the fabric of life. But as 
the towns became gentrified, the women were only allowed to shop on certain days, walk on a certain side of the street. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I can imagine how a woman would have to call to someone to get a little something from the pharmacy. Now, is it possible that the children that she's calling to are her own children? Absolutely. There's an anecdotal tale about a boy in the backyard and a a new person has moved into town. I think it was Telluride. And she says, hi, what's your name? He said, you are not to speak to me. My mother is a whore. And so there was this division that everyone knew who to talk to, who not to talk to. The lines were being drawn. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the Telluride poet Kirsten Bridger about her book Demimonde. Uh, she's going to be reading from it next month at the Telluride Theater. It is uh, giving voice to women who are often voiceless, and that's prostitutes in the Old West. Uh, why don't you read another poem that takes us further into this half-world, this Demimonde? Um, read Carmine for us. Certainly. Carmine. He sliced my smile wider, and when I fought back, they fined me for disorderly conduct. I lost my saloon girl position, worked the fine off on my knees. Pale white powder and the precise shade of lip rouge will conceal for an evening or two, but fantasy is built from flawless specimens. Orchard red, sweet to the core, ripe for the gluttonous worm. A man will pluck an unspoiled apple from bent branch, devour half, and juices dripping, toss the rest. Which speaks to the disposability aspect of this. He sliced my smile wider. I've just been haunted by those lines since I read them, the violence that these women faced. Uh, What were you able to learn about that? Well, the reason that I named this Carmine was to sort of give voice to a woman perhaps named Carmine that I've just thought of. But Carmine is the red dye based on uh, crushed beetle shells. And it was in cosmetics. It still is in cosmetics. And so it became sort of a metaphor for how these women were really part of the economy of the town. But it was built on the crushed backs of them Mm. themselves. But yes, it it was a very violent world if they survived at all. You know, and saloon girls were actually just dance hall girls. Um, they weren't necessarily prostitutes. Mm-hmm. So if there was a pretty one who was dancing with you, and she didn't, she said no. You know, it was it was a drunken, disorderly kind of place. It's interesting. You bring a bit of a southern accent to that poem when you read it. So there's, <laughs> but there there is for you a personification. Um, there are specific character attributes, perhaps to the poems, and the women in them. I feel like to, to give them voice, I did have to sort of listen at a different frequency. And so they're performative as well, uh-huh. these persona poems. At first, I was writing them all sort of third person. I was speaking for them again. And when I let them speak, they sort of, the poems came alive. Do you hope that this history gets like um, more explored more exposed? What do you think the legacy is of it? Well, in just the last few seconds here. I think that we're still discovering that sometimes we, we have these issues to to cope with nowadays. And I think we learn things about ourselves from the historic past all of the time. And we need to relearn its lessons.
Thank you for being with us, Kirsten. Thank you. Poet Kirsten Bridger of Telluride talking about her book, Demi Mons, which she'll read from May 14th at the Telluride Theater. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. 